Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Have you ever had a friend who couldn't hold their liquor? Personally, you know, there's a whole litany of people that come to my mind. Carl, you know, that New York tough guy who pledged our fraternity, who one Saturday evening in a flight of hospitality and fancy, I offered to give him some of my whiskey. And I said, hey man, I can make you a cocktail. He's like, no nah, man, I don't need no fucking mixer. It's all good. And he took a solo cup full of whiskey, tried to chug it, immediately coughed up a mouthful of vomit on my carpet. It happened in the span of less than a second. Me being nice, offering him a drink, him chugging the whiskey and immediately vomiting on my fucking floor. And I was like, Carl, what the fuck, dude? You just threw up on my floor. He's like, no, man, no, I just coughed. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's maybe technically true, you know, in the same way that a shart is is still technically a fart. But, bro, you just threw up on my floor. Get out. No, man, you crazy, he said. You know, there was this six foot seven gigantic football player who decided he hated me for some reason. And we were dangerously close to getting into a fight, which looking back would have probably caused me at least great physical harm, though I'm, I'm, I feel confident that I could have at least dished a little bit back. But we both would have gotten kicked out of our fraternity forever. Not cool. But the crowning example in my mind is a fight that will go down in history forever. Which at the time, I kind of had this like half-hearted YouTube channel that I never really posted anything to. And uh, it was titled, I'm not going to give it away. Um, I've long since lost it. But this fight, this video, Mexican versus white. In the left corner, we had Snots, Mexican. Now, I've shared a bit about him on a previous podcast. To protect the innocent, we'll continue to call him Snots. And Snots, he's an awesome dude. He's that type of a guy you pray to have on your side in a military unit. Equal parts sarcasm, toughness, and never quit attitude. A true fucking American in the original sense of the word. I played rugby with him. Uh, He and I were able to tap into a similar form of mental illness, and we both would allegedly scream and try to fight people during the rugby matches, though both of our memories are a little bit hazy at that point, so we're mostly going just off witness testimony. But Snots? See, at the time I'm remembering, he had uh, what we might call some unresolved issues. And, uh, you know, these issues occasionally came out in the form of uh, emotional distress when he was drinking aka there was a certain threshold of alcohol that if ingested by our buddy snots caused him to behave like he just got tear gassed cry yell fight everyone and generally be such a fucking situation that we all had to try our best to force him to go the fuck to sleep like that children's book by samuel l jackson and what's that rule in physics That uh, when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, crazy shit happens. And see, this night I'm remembering Snots. He was an unstoppable force on a bender, crying, yelling, generally just causing a righteous scene. 
and my other friend, who, again, to protect the innocent, will call Doc. Now, Doc was an immovable object. See, Doc's a combination between Steve Austin, Elon Musk, and Joe Dirt. He's jacked as fuck. He is and was a farmer, but he's also a man of letters. Scholarships to college and medical school, a genius. The toughest human I've ever seen. He is low-key super duper smart, but he isn't too proud to admit that just because he's helly smart, that he can't appreciate the finer things in life. Like getting blackout drunk, Bush Light, and the band Lorna Shore. And I've seen Doc get his hands, face, and head stepped on with cleats in a rugby match. And just exhale in a way that doesn't really acknowledge the fact that, as YG would say, he got stomped out. And more like, can you believe this shit? So annoying. And at this time, Doc was experimenting with how far he could take the concept of drunkenness which turns out pretty far. That said, uh, a time from a couple weird times when Doc decided he wanted to kind of like tickle people without making eye contact with them while everyone else was trying to have a conversation, Doc generally is not a problem. Oh, and one more thing. Doc had taken four months of jujitsu at this time, a truly immovable object. And so on this fateful night, a bunch of us were hanging out with our fraternity president outside his room conversation flowing jokes flinging canadian mist in our veins doc had that glazed look where his eyes had just become dog's eyes but aside from that everyone is just making conversation and having fun a normal saturday night in Greencastle, indiana and then we hear hmm that's a weird noise let's go investigate so me and my other friend walk down the stairs and it's snots, belligerent, wild, animalistic, spectacular. And after determining no one is indeed currently dying and it's just snots dealing with his own issues, we try to sneak back. But snots, snots sees us and he follows. It's like his simple mind was only able to form one thought, friendship. And so we return to what was previously a pleasant conversation outside the president's room, but now Snots follows and attempts to join in. But unfortunately, Snots is five drinks past the point of no return. He has lost command of the English language. And so, you know, like a safari that just got way more fucked up as you turn the bend and you see two lions black with blood fighting to the death, teeth bangs, death. The tour guide's jokes fall flat as multiple families with children witness one lion take the other's life and experience the ecstatic triumph that only comes from the extinguishing of a being. That is what we were dealing with. We're trying to have this normal, fun little conversation and snots is there. And we'll just say the, the ambiance is a little bit ruined five buzzed people and one absolute monkey in a human coat but we try to continue hanging out having fun i you know i guess this guy is incredibly wasted but whatever he's our friend and then all of a sudden everything changes see doc looks at snots and i kid you not snots takes deep offense to that so instead of giving away his intentions Snots follows the principle of Bushido and strikes with speed, surprise, and violence of action because how dare Doc look at Snots? The previously chill mood is shattered 
when Snot cracks Doc in the face with a wild overhand right. We're all shocked. What the actual fuck is going on? And me, an early adopter to being an apathetic bystander and not helping at all, I pull out my phone and I start videoing while yelling, World Star! World Star! And remember what I said about Doc? You know, the, the toughest human I know? Well, Doc ate the punch like a kid eating a fruit cup. A look of absolute delight lights up his blackened dog's eyes. Because Doc, Doc is and was a connoisseur of violence. But he also is educated and has accepted the social contract that he wasn't allowed to go around fighting people, no matter how tingly it made him deep in his grundle. But this, this right here, this was called self-defense. And so, like Conor McGregor's drunken redneck cousin, Doc, his hulking mass concealing a lightning-fast quickness, hits Snots right in the mouth with a right hand. He then proceeds to hit a sloppy double leg and use his four months of redneck jiu-jitsu to mount Snots. And now Doc is in mount, straddling Snots, stronger, bigger, and much more sober, though like, not sober, Doc could have fucked up Snots. But instead, he decides to take Snots' dignity. He pins his arms down. He lets Snots fight. Snots feels despair. He's ineffective. He's angry, frothing. A hyena caught in a leg trap with no ability to chew off his own leg. And now, class is in session. Doc is going to teach Snots the forbidden magic only bestowed on doctors. Doc decides that Purely showing his dominance, yeah, it's not quite good enough. Time to learn Snots up on the way of the world. Doc headbutts Snots in the face. Once. Twice. Gah! We're all so shocked. We don't even know what to do. A few hysterical shouts of world star escape our lips and twist his dick. Maybe does leave our mouth, but nothing out of the ordinary. Then, to add insult to injury, Doc starts humping Snots' face. One second goes by, oh, that's such a good idea, that's so funny, we cheer, I'll put him in his place. Two seconds go by, hmm, this is getting a little bit weird. Five seconds go by, oh my god, why does Doc have an erection? Ten seconds, no, get him off, get him off, he's gonna come. And for some reason, that whole experience really seemed to endear Doc to Snots, even though Snots just got his face humped. And for the rest of the night, Snox is yelling for Doc, Doc. We try to put him to bed. Like how the fuck are we supposed to find hot girls to hang out with when we have Snots completely blackout drunk yelling Doc. Finally, me and the first friend who found him uh, after having a rational debate with ourselves of should we just fuck him up and leave him to die in the hallway? We decide we're going to be the bigger men. We put him to bed. Finally, we close the door. He's too drunk to understand locks. Shouts of Doc still linger with me to this day. And, you know, that's a silly example. Who hasn't face-fucked their loudmouth friend into submission? But what if I told you that for that, and also much more serious types of interpersonal violence, there are always clues. Always at least some pre-incident indicators that victims of violent crime could have honed in on prior to the event. And it's conceivable that if we are able to understand those pre-incident indicators, that we could limit or at least severely minimize the risk and damage of having to defend ourselves and experience violence. And that, my priest, is what we are going to learn us up on today. 
The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. Now, this book is a deep study on interpersonal violence with a strong lens to predicting and avoiding it, where Colonel Cooper's view is basically like, food tastes better, jokes are funnier, and life is ultimately more meaningful right after you take a man's life. Gavin's not so sure about that. You know, he spent 40 years running a security and protection company to save the day without just killing the bad guy. His firm is a 900-person consulting company specializing in prediction, protection, and training people in how to avoid violent encounters, which, if I know anything about consulting, Gavin is fucking raking. I would say he, he's making at least $5 million a year, but, but probably way more. His firm has helped sports stars, Jeff Bezos, famous actors and actresses. Gavin DeBecker is the definitive source on violence and how to stay vigilant, stay safe, and ultimately thrive in this crazy world. And if his name sounds familiar, it is. He wrote the foreword to On Combat by our Lord and Savior Dave Grossman. And this book can save your life. And it should be read by everyone who wants to triumph over fear. And so, my priests, this is another journey, wild, crazy, long. But if you can hold out, if you can make it through, this might just be the thing that allows you to defend yourself, avoid violence, and finally get a chest full of hair into the book. He had probably been watching her for a while. We aren't sure, but what we do know is that she was not his first victim. That afternoon, in an effort to get all her shopping done in one trip, Kelly had overestimated what she could comfortably carry home. Justifying her decision as she struggled with the heavy bags, she reminded herself that making two trips, that would have meant walking around after dark, and she was too careful about her safety for that. As she climbed the few steps to her apartment building door, she saw that it had been left unlocked again. Her neighbors just don't get it, she thought. And though their lax security annoyed her, this time she was glad to be saved the trouble of getting out the key. So she's bringing her groceries in. She goes to the apartment door. So imagine she's, you know, like lives in a New York City, you know, 10 story apartment or something. She in, but the, the front door is unlocked and she's like, damn it. Neighbors just don't ever seem to care about security, but Hey, her hands are full of groceries right now. She's just going to walk in. Whew, great. Convenient. She closed the door behind her, pushing it until she heard it latch. She is certain she locked it, which means he must have already been inside the corridor. Next came the four flights of stairs, which she wanted to do in one trip. Near the top of the third landing, one of the bags gave way, tearing open and dispensing cans of cat food. They rolled down the stairs almost playfully as if they were trying to get away from her. The cannon lead rolled down to the second floor and literally turned the corner and continued hopping down the stairs. I got it. I'll bring it up. Someone called out. Right from the start, Kelly didn't like the voice. Something just sounded wrong to her. But then this friendly young guy came bounding up the steps, collecting the cans along the way. Hey, hey, let me give you a hand. Nope, nope, no thanks. I got it, she says. Hey, you don't look like you've got it. What floor are you going to, he says. She paused before answering, why do I feel weird about this? Um, I'm going to the fourth, but hey, I'm, I'm really okay. He would not hear a word of it. He says, I'm going to the fourth floor too, and I'm late. 
Not my fault. Broken watch. So let's not just stand here. He reached out and tried to tug one of the bags in her arms. No, hey, really, I've got it. Thanks. Still holding up the grocery bag, he said, You know, there's such a thing as being too proud. For a moment, Kelly didn't let go of that bag, but then she did. And this seemingly insignificant exchange between the cordial stranger and the recipient of the courtesy was the signal to him and to her that she was willing to trust him. So that's crazy. This guy was just already inside the building. The cat food rolls down the stairs. He says, hey, I got it. And she's feeling weird from the beginning. And she's like, no, 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 I got it. But he's like really insistent. He's trying to grab the bag out of her hands. And then she's like, seriously, dude, I've got it. And then he says, there's such thing as being too proud. Basically saying, hey, you're a bitch if you don't let me help you. And she's like, God damn it. Okay, fine. And then he's gotten in. Even though he seemed to want nothing more at that moment than to be helpful, she was apprehensive about him for no good reason. She thought Man, he was being friendly, he was being gentlemanly, Why? I'm f I, and she felt guilty about her suspicion. They were now approaching the door to her apartment. Kelly was now standing at the door to her apartment, which she just opened. She says, hey, I'll take it from here, hoping he'd just hand her the groceries, accept her thanks, and leave. And, and then he goes, I didn't come, I didn't come this far to let you have another cat food spill. When she still hesitated to let him in her door, he laughed understandingly. Hey, hey, we, we can leave. We can leave the door open like the ladies do in old movies. I'll, I'll just put the stuff down and go. I promise. She let him in, but he did not keep his promise. <sighs> Fuck, dude, I forgot how good of a writer Gavin is. Just get prepared, man. This series is a journey into the human darkness, and um, gonna have to gonna get get your mind right. At this point, as she is telling me the story of the rape and the whole three-hour ordeal she suffered, Kelly pauses to weep quietly. She now knows that he killed one of his victims. He stabbed her to death. Before the rape, she was a counselor for disturbed children, but she hasn't been back to work in a long while. The confidence he scared off was still hiding, the dignity he pierced still healing. Kelly is about to learn that listening to one small survival signal saved her life, just as failing to follow so many others put her in risk in the first place. It was after he'd already held the gun to her head, after he'd already raped her, it was after that he got up from the bed, got dressed, then closed the window. He glanced at his watch and started acting like he was in a hurry. He's like, oh, hey, I, I got to be somewhere. Don't look so scared. Promise I'm not going to hurt you. Kelly absolutely knew he was lying. She knew he planned to kill her, and she felt profound fear. He waved the gun and said, don't you move or do anything. I'm going to the kitchen to get something to drink, and then I'll leave. You know I won't move, she assured him. The instant he stepped from the room, Kelly stood up, and walked after him, pulling the sheet off the bed behind her. She says, I was literally right behind him, like a ghost, and he didn't know. I was there. We walked down the hall together. Kelly could hear drawers being opened as she walked out her front door, leaving it ajar. She walked directly into the apartment across the hall, which was unlocked. Holding a finger up to signal her surprised neighbors to be quiet, she locked the door behind her. So she just got horribly assaulted for three hours. The guy closes the window, says, hey, I'm going to go get a drink of water, and then I'm going to leave. But she's like, 
I absolutely know that that's not true. I'm willing to risk everything. And she like sneaks behind him and then just uh, just assumptively walks out her front door directly into the neighbor's um, apartment across the hall. She says, I knew if I stayed in my room, he was going to come back from the kitchen and kill me. But I don't know how I was so certain. Yes, you do, Gavin tells her. She sighs and then goes over it again. Okay. So he got up got dressed he closed the window he looked at his watch he promised he wouldn't hurt me then he went in the kitchen and was looking and looking in the drawers you know okay of course he was looking for a knife but i knew that way before i guess he wanted a knife because using the gun would be too noisy gavin says what makes you think he was concerned about noise i don't know um oh oh i do know i get it i get it the noise that was the thing that's why he closed the window that's how i knew since he was dressed and supposedly leaving, he had no other reason to close her window. It was that subtle signal that warned her, but it was fear that gave her the courage to get up without hesitation and follow close behind the man who intended to kill her. She later described a fear so complete that it replaced every feeling in her body. She experienced real fear. Not like when we get startled or when we're at a movie or, you know, public speaking. This fear is the powerful ally that says, do what I tell you to do now. Sometimes it tells a person to play dead or stop breathing or to run or scream or fight. But to Kelly, it just said, just be quiet and don't doubt me and I'll get you out of here. But that fear, that thing is available to us all. I want this book to help you be one of those people who benefit so you never become a victim. Because of my sustained look at violence, because I've predicted the behavior of murderers, stalkers, would-be assassins, rejected boyfriends, mass killers, and others, I am called an expert, Gavin says. I may have learned many lessons, but my basic premise in these pages is that you too are an expert at predicting violent behavior. Like every creature, you can know whether you are in danger or not. You have the gift of a brilliant internal guardian that stands ready to warn you of the hazards and guide you through risky situations. I've learned some lessons about safety through years of asking people who suffered violence. And so that's his whole thesis. And we're going to dive way deeper into this. But he's saying he's going to help us. He's going to calibrate our judgment, our intuition. But inside all of us, built in is a, is a prediction machine our intuition that lets us get ahead of these situations. And so we already have it all inside of us, but he's going to just pull it out. Could you have seen this coming? That's a common question when there's a violent situation. Most often, the answer is immediate, quickly, and just says, no, dude, it came out of nowhere. But if Gavin's quiet, if he waits a moment, here comes the information. You know, I did feel uneasy when I first met that guy. Or, now that I think about it, I was suspicious when he approached me. Or, you know, I realize now I'd actually seen that car earlier today. So he's saying, when we're asking somebody after a violent attack, he's like, could you have predicted this? Like, Definitely not. And then he waits. And a lot of times they're like, well, you know, the first time I saw the UPS guy, I was like, my, my first thought was, fuck, they're breaking into my house. But then he delivered a package, and I'm like, oh, that's weird. But then it turns out he was a fake UPS guy. Of course, 
if they realize it now, they actually knew it then. We all see the signals because there's a universal code of violence. You'll find some of what you need to break that code in the following chapters, but most of it is already in you. In a very real sense, the surging water in an ocean does not move, rather energy moves through it. In the same sense, the energy of violence moves through our culture. Some experience it as a light but unpleasant breeze, easy to tolerate. Others are destroyed by it as if by a hurricane. God damn it, Kevin, what good writing, dude. Nicely done. Violence is a part of our species. Neither privilege nor fame will keep it away. If a full jumbo jet crashed into a mountain, killing everyone on board, and if that happened every month, month in and month out, the number of people killed still wouldn't equal the number of women murdered by their husbands and boyfriends each year. Damn. To make it more real, you probably right now know a woman who's been battered and you've probably seen the warning signs. She or her husband works with you, lives near you, amazes you in sports, fills your prescription or advises on your taxes. You may not know, however, that women visit emergency rooms for injuries caused by their husbands or boyfriends more often than injuries from car accidents, robberies, and rapes combined. Damn, dude. A, that's a lot. And B, he is presenting those numbers so fucking persuasively. I sometimes have to present data for my job and taking notes. Gavin says, I presented these facts about the frequency of violence for a reason, to increase the likelihood that you will believe it is at least possible that you or someone you care for will be a victim at some time. That belief is a key element in recognizing when you are in danger. That belief balances denial, the powerful and cunning enemy of successful predictions. So he's saying, hey, listen, you've got to at least acknowledge the fact that it's possible that you are going to be a victim of violence. Denial gets you nowhere. Pretending it's not a dick doesn't make it not a dick. Americans are experts at denial. A choir whose song could be titled, things like that just don't happen in this neighborhood. This is Carmel, Indiana. Denial has an interesting and insidious side effect. For all the peace of mind deniers think they get by saying, yeah, just, it isn't so, it's caramel. The fall when they get victimized is far greater than that of those who accept the possibility. So we can deny, we can live in this denial bubble, but he's saying the big problem with that is if it turns out you're wrong, it's earth shattering. Far better to just accept reality. If we studied any other creature in nature and found the record of intraspecies violence that exists in humans, we'd be repulsed by it. We'd view it as a great perversion of natural law, but we couldn't deny it. So he's making good points, man. He's saying, hey, if we studied a group, a group of fucking lemurs and we saw violence at the same level as humans, we'd be like, these lemurs are perverts of moral law. This species is the devil. But we wouldn't we wouldn't be like, no, that lemur's probably not gonna get hurt. Like, yeah, that that lemur's entire family got ripped apart by other lemurs, bro. That lemur's probably actually gonna get hurt. No, we wouldn't deny it. As we stand on the tracks, we can avoid the oncoming train only if we are willing to see it and willing to predict that it won't stop. Since fear is so central to our experience, understanding 
when it is a gift and when it is a curse is well worth the effort. So his whole big thing is that like we already have this gift of fear inside of us that can help us predict attacks. You know, in the same place that, you know, lust and desire or laughing when you see someone get hit in the balls lives is a supercomputer self-defense prediction machine that allows us to escape violence. Throughout our lives, each of us will have to make many important behavioral predictions on our own without experts. From the wide list of people who present themselves, we'll choose candidates, we'll choose candidates for inclusion in our lives as employers, employees, advisors, friends, lovers, spouses. Whether it's learned the easy way or the hard way, the truth remains that your safety is yours. It's not the responsibility of the police, the government, industry, or apartment building managers. You know, there's not some technology solution that's gonna solve this all. And so what he's saying is that, listen man, we're already, already gonna just have to make predictions and we already do. You know, so, hey, you're going to hire somebody. What are you really doing? Well, you're predicting how they're going to do at the job. You know, let's say you, you go on a date with someone. Well, you're predicting the likelihood that you're going to get killed or that this person's going to be a fucking stalker, you know, graft against how horny you are or, you know, or whatever. Um, but if we're already going to have to make all these predictions, we might as well learn about how to do those best. But there's more to the viscerally named gut feeling. It is a process far more extraordinary and ultimately more logical in the natural order than the most fantastically complicated computer calculation. I don't know. I mean, this was written before ChatGPT, but um, suffice to say, it's pretty damn complicated. It is our most complex cognitive process and at the same time, the simplest. And he says, you know, in his self-defense consulting business, the husband and wife who make an appointment to discuss the harassing and threatening phone calls they are getting, at some point in the discussion of possible suspects, the woman will invariably say something like, you know, that there is one other person, and I don't have any concrete reasons for thinking that, that it's him. I just have this feeling, and I hate to even suggest it, but right there, Gavin says, he could send them the bill. So he's saying, it's good, it's complicated, it's it's sophisticated internal computer. And he sees this all the time. You know, a husband and wife are getting, you know, threatening phone calls, like harassing them, like, hey, you gotta move. We're all lactose intolerant on this block. And it's like, what, no, but I, I like milk. Yeah, that's the problem. And and they don't know who it's gonna be, and they're getting, you know, they're, they're getting uh, their, their house milked, not even egged. They're, there's people are throwing a gall gallons of milk against their house. And they're like, I just don't know who this could be. And then, you know, invariably, the wife or the husband's like, you know, actually, there is a guy. You know, he's the president of the National Lactose Intolerance Society. I don't have anything really concrete, but I was at the gym one time and he just stared me down. And I think he had an erection. I don't I don't know. And, and then Gavin's like, that'll be $7,000. As we explore the pieces of the human violence puzzle, I'll show you their shapes and their colors. Above all, I hope to leave you knowing that every puzzle can be solved long before all the pieces are in place. People do things we say out of the blue or all of a sudden. These phrases support the popular myth that predicting human behavior is impossible. Yet think about all the predictions we correctly make on a daily basis. 
the drive to work, how our spouse will react to a comment, or how your boss will listen to your idea. You know, I'm in sales. Every time I present something to a prospect, I'm, I'm making a prediction of like knowing what I know about them and comparing that to all the different types of people out there that I've interacted with, you know, maybe running it through the disc profile or something like how should I present this message to them that increases the chances that they'll receive it best? We're all doing predictions all the time. And predicting violent behavior is easier than any of these. But since we fantasize that human violence is an aberration, we're just like, ah, we can't predict it. So all those predictions we're making all the time. You know, how that, how your, how that first date's going to go. How, how asking your boss for feedback's going to go. Um, you know, negotiating to buy a car. Like, we do all these predictions. And his point is that actually predicting violent behavior is easier. But since we all have our head in the sand and we're like, well, these lemurs are primarily peaceful. Like, dude, that lemur has a necklace made of eyeballs. That it, It's not, okay? They're not. And But if we just ignore it, we say we can't predict it. The human violence we abhor and fear the most, that which we call random and senseless, is neither. It always has purpose and meaning to the perpetrator, at least. As long as we label it senseless, we will not be able to make any sense of it. As we go through all of this, you'll see that even esoteric types of violence have detachable patterns and warning signs. And that's the whole point here. You know, he's going to walk through a bunch of examples, ways that violence presents itself. I've pulled out the best parts with the goal of being like a firmware update for our intuition. So we can all take this with us to survive in this crazy world. And if you stick with this series, Gavin is going to unveil everything we could ever want to know about violence, how to predict it, and what to do to stay safe. How can I say all this so confidently, Gavin asks? Well, I'm old as fuck. No, that's not what he says. He says, because I've had four decades of lessons from the most qualified teachers. When I called and told Kelly, so the person in the, you know, the cat food um, assault story, when I called and told Kelly I, Kelly, I decided to devote a year to writing this book. I also thanked her for what she taught me. And then she asked him, which case taught you the most? With so many to choose from, I told Kelly I didn't know. But as I hung up, I realized I did know. Thinking back, it was as if I was in that room again. <laughs> what a good transition, dude. You make over $5 million a year, and you're so good at writing. What can't you do, Gavin? God damn it, man. Making me feel inspired. That's right. A woman was pointing a gun at her husband, who was standing with his hands held out in front of him. Now I'm going to kill you, she repeated quietly, almost to herself. She was an attractive woman of 33, wearing slacks, a man's white dress shirt, pretty big tits, probably at least D, maybe double D, the tightest ass. Gavin! What the fuck, bro? Have some respect. There were eight bullets in the gun. I was standing off to the side in a doorway, watching the scene unfold. As I had been before and would be so many times again, I was responsible for predicting whether or not a murder would occur. The stakes were high. Threats like hers I knew were easy to speak, but harder to honor. She would alternate between aggressive and quiet, and Gavin was feeling like the quiet times were actually worse. Her way of stealing herself for murder. I noticed she was not wearing shoes, but discarded the observation as irrelevant and returned to the task at hand, 
Details are snapshots, not portraits. We had to look quickly at everything to determine what might matter. The papers on the floor, the broken glass likely thrown in an argument, the overturned table, all assessed and quickly discarded. I then saw a detail of great significance. Though it was just a quarter inch of movement, the fraction of an inch her thumb traveled to rest on the hammer of the gun carried the woman further along the path to homicide than anything she could have said. So Gavin's witnessing this, and there's a woman pointing a gun at a guy, and she's saying these threats, and he's like, I don't know, like, should we, are the, do those threats matter? Do they not? It's really easy to say those things. But then her finger moves to the hammer of the gun. Though I didn't know it at the time, I was automatically applying and reapplying the single most important tool of any prediction, pre-incident indicators. And this is the core of a lot of his, his theories here. Pre-incident indicators are the, those detectable factors that occur before the outcome being predicted. Stepping on the first rung of a ladder is a significant pre-incident indicator of reaching the top of the ladder. Since everything a person does is created twice, once in the mind and once in its execution, ideas and impulses are pre-incident indicators for action. The woman was now backing away from her husband. To someone else, that may have looked like a retreat, but I intuitively knew that it was the final pre-incident indicator before pulling the trigger. Because guns are not intimate weapons, her desire for some distance from the person she was about to shoot was the element that completed my prediction and I quickly acted. I backed quietly down the hall through the kitchen by the burning and forgotten dinner into the small bedroom where a young girl was napping. As I crossed the room to wake the child, I hear the gunshot I had just predicted. I was startled but not surprised. The silence that followed, however, did concern me. My plan was to take the child out of the house, but I abandoned that plan and I told her to stay in bed. At two years old, she probably didn't understand the seriousness of the situation, but I was 10 and I knew all about these things. God damn it, Gavin. That's like goosebumps level writing. That's you. You're so good at writing. It made me, I, I was like, oh my God. And how dare you say that stuff by your mom, man. That's disrespectful. But anyway, just, just, just kidding. JK, JK. Very good. Uh, so Gavin, you know that, that, so that whole story, that was Gavin when he was 10. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that gun go off in the house. On my way back to our living room, I stopped when I smelled the gunpowder around me. As I stood straining to hear any tiny sound, there came instead an enormous noise. Several, several more gunshots fired quickly. I quickly rounded the corner. My stepfather was crouched down on both knees, my mother leaning over him, offering him care. I could see blood on his hands and legs. I tried to reassure him with my calm. I knew he'd never been through anything like this before, but I had. And he says that uh, looking at his mom, he saw that she'd changed and she had switched to doting wife, nursing, nursing her husband's injury as if she'd played no part in it. By the time our family moved from that house a year later, there were nine bullets embedded in the walls and floors. I imagine they are still there. Fuck. And this was you know, that, that amazing transition of like, what's the case that you taught that taught you the most? He goes into this and it's his case. So the case that taught him the most about prediction was when his mom almost killed his stepdad when he was 10. 
and he walks through his his rough childhood you know domestic abuse suicide attempts by his mom crazy it turns out gavin says i was attending an academy of sorts and it turns out so have you no matter your actual major in college or even if you didn't go to college you have been studying people for a long time carefully developing theories and strategies to predict what they might do and in the course of his business he has had the opportunity to work with presidents federal agencies famous people testify on his opin opinions of the oj simpson case what binds all this together is prediction my firm predicts human behavior in one category violence among all the weird ventures in america could you ever have imagined a literal warehouse of alarming and unwelcome things which stalkers have sent to the objects of their unwanted pursuit? Thousand-page death threats, phone book-sized love letters, body parts, blood, razor blades. Would you have imagined that there's a building containing more than 350,000 obsessive and threatening communications? Many of my 46 associates work in such a building there we cast light on the darkest parts of our culture seeking every day to improve our understanding of hazard and every day helping people manage fear and if you join him on this journey he will open your mind heart and taint to interpersonal violence and how to stay safe by the end of this you'll see that if your intuition is informed correctly the danger signal will sound when it should if you come to trust this fact, you'll not only be safer, but it will be possible to live free of fear. But if you want to continue this, if you want to dive into all those sweet morsels to get everything you've ever wanted in life, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.